0: The media we consume when we're young can have a long-lasting effect on us as we grow up. There's something especially evocative of the comic books we read as children that shape the kind of fans that we are as adults. Perhaps it's the formative nature of being that age, or perhaps it's the strong feelings of nostalgia for a simpler time, but the comics we loved as kids tend to stay with us the longest. My name's Matt Loon and today on the show I'm joined by Al Kennedy and Claire Napier to discuss the formative comic books that made them the fans they are today. This is That's The Issue.
1: I'm Al Kennedy, and um, for the past ten years or so, I've been co-presenting a comics podcast called House to Astonish, in which we cover comics news, do a couple of reviews, and then do a bit of kind of silly mucking around with a makeover feature called the Official Handbook of the Official Handbook of the Marvel Universe. And you can find us at housetoastonish.com.
2: I'm Claire Napier. Um, I'm a critic. I used to be an editor at WomenWriterBackComics.com. I now edit comics and I dabble in cartooning as well.
0: Excellent. Welcome both. Uh, it's really lovely to have you join me on the show. Um, so uh, I'll start with you, Al. Uh, you mentioned in your intro that you'd been doing House of Astonish, uh for 10 years now. Um, so your um, 168th episode was your 10-year uh, celebration, which was last November um how have you how, firstly how have you felt that uh, your podcast has grown in the last 10 years have you enjoyed have you enjoyed doing it
1: well it's grown in as much as i think we've gotten better at it um one difficulty we had was that um we took a hiatus for about eight months uh when uh, my first child was born and the problem with that was that everyone thought we'd just gone away <laughs> so um, <laughs> i think we've got about half the audience now that we had at our peak um and that was mm. from and you can trace it to that exact thing was the, the eight-month hiatus but um you know we just keep going along and doing our thing and it's been uh, a journey of um learning how to work the equipment better learning how (laughs) to do the editing better and learning when it doesn't matter that you haven't worked the equipment properly or done the editing (laughs) because sometimes a good edit is needed to just go right I'm going to scoop out that particular bit there where we have completely libeled somebody or (laughs) you know where somebody has um, managed to drop something off the desk or something like that um, but sometimes you just go, right, well, do you know what? We talked for five minutes there in a total tangent about how the Justice League of America relates to Rod Hull's Pink Windmill Show or something like that. And, you know, part of that will have been explaining to Americans what Rod Hull's Pink Windmill Show was. Um, it's yeah. way less weird than it sounds. Actually, no, it's exactly as weird as it sounds. Um <laughs> And yeah, just getting a bit more comfortable with it, and comfortable with um the fact that when we do an episode of this, at, at this point, ten years in, we have got an established format. We've got a, a, a listenership that knows what they're coming for, and we all we can do is just do what we have been doing to the best of our ability. And if people enjoy that, then that's awesome. And if they don't, then we're past the point of going. Oh gosh, what can we do about that? If you like if you like it, it's brilliant. If you don't like it, then there's so many other comics podcasts out there.
0: Well, yeah, that was what I was going to say, really, because you, obviously, you started then back in 2008, um, you and uh, Paul O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was it like back then? What was the like? that uh, makes me sound like, <laughs> makes it sound like I'm talking about like the 40s. It was, but, like, it was you know, in wild. terms. It was, like, it was like the ancient times of podcast, wasn't it? Because things were so fast.
1: Yeah, year. we had one server between five of us and we had to have a <laughs> bath in front of the fire.
0: That was it. Uh,
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, there were far fewer podcasts back then in terms Mm. of the the comics scene. I wouldn't try to start a comics podcast now. No. You know, I think that the the scene is so, um, so full and there are so many shows that just do the exact same thing, which is we are a number of white men between two and five and we sit around and talk about probably uh wrestling and um our week and uh, maybe video games for fifteen to twenty minutes and then we'll start talking about some comics hmm. and we'll do a lot of inside jokes. I don't
2: know what you're talking about. That sounds just incredibly original to me.
0: <laughs> yeah there's um, <laughs> I need to write there these seems to be a lot down. to recommend
1: it because it's what a lot of people decide to do. Um whereas I mean what we've been doing is what what we try to do anyway is give a viewpoint that is well informed like we're not gonna sit there and go oh well i heard that they're cancelling spectacular sword of venom and they're cancelling it because uh Brian, Michael Bendis, and uh, Bill Jemis are going to start a new comics company and they're going to be courting the writer of that to come and launch their new adventures <laughs> of Got No Lex Man. And that's why they cancelled it. It's There's so many podcasts that are like that. And we just want to put out... I, I, a lot of people actually said to that they listen to our show rather than follow comics news online Mm. because if there's something which is important then we will explain it in an even handed and fair way as opposed to a kind of i mean we're both obviously huge fanboys that you don't end up doing a comics podcast unless you're in some way a fan but we would try and come at things from as well-informed perspective as we can
0: yeah
1: and you both of us have been reviewing comics for Absolutely, Donkey's Years Paul Bryan started reviewing comics um, X-Men specifically On Usenet in the 90s Wow And has been doing the X-Axis His comics reviews His X-Men related comics reviews Since then You know, I, I My first regular comics writing gig Was at Ninth Art So, you know, back in like 2001, 2002 Yeah, yeah So, you know, we remember Back when all this was Field's <laughs>
0: It does. It does feel like though, like that kind of because I remember those websites. I remember visiting those, and and I remember, you know, it, it feels like such a such a long time ago in kind of internet terms. Because you know, as podcasts especially have come on kind of leaps and bounds in in that sense. Like I know when I started this podcast. I mean, I started it in its original in like you know initial original version um, was about two years ago. Um, but when I kind of rebooted it, I had to ask myself, why Why do I want to do it? You know, why? what What can I possibly do that's, that someone else hasn't already done? Um, and I think I, I kind of drove myself a little mad with that and ended up kind of stalling quite a bit with it until mm. the idea just kind of came to me, just like, well, why do I want to do it in the first place? And that's, you know, for me, I want to chat with people, get to know people that I kind of respect and admire and, you know, that I followed online and just kind of actually talk to them you know like people and get to know them and their love of comics and stuff and I thought well I'm I'm just going to do it and like I think there's there's probably a lot of other podcasts that do what I do but um but at the same time I think it's just it's just something I want to do set like kind of selfishly for my own benefit more than anything else um but um but yeah it's it's it is a a very different landscape now to to what it was when you started um and what made you want to start doing the podcast in the first place
1: it was to um, give some relief to the other members of our pub quiz team who otherwise had to listen to us talk about comics every week.
0: <laughs> Have an outlet for you, like a valve. Like a Basically, vowel to- yeah.
1: Oh, essentially that was it it was you know we would we we're on the same public as team we would sit and just blether a lot of rubbish about comics for international listeners that word there is a good scottish word. it means just a sort of chin wag <laughs> and top nonsense and then we were like well why don't we do one of these you know computer radio shows and that was you know november 2008 It's
0: crazy and do you listen to a lot of podcasts now or do you
1: I do I, yeah I mean there's one of the great things has been getting to be friends with other comics podcasters and mm. um, we did a great big huge uh, crossover event a couple of years ago well actually a couple of years 2015 I think it was I remember that um, yeah. called secret conversions on infinite podcast and it had nine shows involved and everybody appeared in each other's shows and we had nine big roundtable discussions and it's meant that I've made friends doing this and um i listen to you, you end up listening to your friends podcasts mm, it's, it's yeah. great because lots of them know lots of stuff yeah yeah
0: that's excellent yeah that's kind of the reason i wanted to to kind of dive in really it's just the idea of getting to know people and kind of mixing and making friends with you know fellow comic nerds and stuff like that so yeah that's mm. great what about you claire, claire do you listen to podcasts
2: that's quite surprising to me because most people who make comics always go on about how they never have time to read any. I would have thought it would be the same with podcasts.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've got a commute that was the thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I have like an hour uh, every day there and back. So I just kind of listen to as many as I can in the car. Do you listen to any, Claire?
2: what a question
0: (laughs) (laughs) neither of us will be offended if you say no (laughs) we'll just assume that there's at least two you listen to and then you can talk about the rest
2: (laughs) other than yours which are perfect um no i I, i'm not very i occasionally listen to occasional single episodes but i'm not very good um i like silence Hmm. i do honestly um I find it hard to concentrate on what people are saying without having something to look at as well. So if I'm listening to a podcast and doing nothing else, then I mean, I'm just, that's, that's an unlikely situation to happen. If I was in hospital or something, maybe. Um, <laughs> so if you, the only time listen you'd to listen to a podcast, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you know, I, I've, I've had the medicine, I'm getting better, <laughs> right. but now I need something to do. Listen to a podcast. Um, I watch a lot of YouTube,
0: mm. which
2: I find a lot easier to process yeah. because there's something to look at, to go with what I'm hearing instead of I'm looking at something else. And then I'm my, all my focus is going on the thing that I'm looking at. And then I've missed a chunk of podcast. I have to run it back and it, it just gets dreadful. Um, sometimes when, um, like we rearrange the room or something, we'll have a podcast mm. on because my, my partner listens to a bunch. Um, And, you know, sometimes I have friends who have podcasts and I feel guilty if I don't listen to them because obviously it's good content. It's just that I'm not very good at being an audience member for the good content. Mm. Um, I know what you mean. I always listen to uh, How To Wrestling because sometimes they have my tweets on and I I like to feel special. (laughs) So that's the way to get me to listen. Just, you know, say, oh, yeah, we're using your tweets this time, Claire. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll be there. That's it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, I yeah, I um, I know what you mean because I always feel like I have to be doing something else as well. Like, um, an old friend of mine had like he want his his thing was music and his thing was you know collecting vinyl and and rare CDs and things. Mm-hmm. And he'd had he had like a, a music room and he'd sit and he had a chair that he'd sit in. And it just be like I don't understand how you can just sit there and listen to music. Like I, I have to be doing mm. something else. So if I'm listening to, you know, commute is perfect for me because I'm I'm driving. So like I have to have something on to listen to it. I might as well listen to podcasts because I can't stand the radio. Um, but then you know if I'm cleaning around the house or if I'm writing or something, I'll have podcasts on as well. I'm not really I'm not really a silence person. I much prefer to have kind of something to occupy my. Like the terrible dark thoughts. So <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But like, I just like having something on, you know. But um, but yes, it's it is strange how we kind of consume media, isn't it? I suppose. Yes. But um, yeah. One of the one of the many things that you do, Claire, because your intro listed a few of the uh, a few of the things that you're uh, you're known for. Um, but you um. Fingers <laughs> in many pies. Yeah, I didn't want to use that term, uh, but um, but yeah, you um, you write critically about comics, and you write for sites like uh, Comics MNT and Shelf Dust, um, but you also okay. for women write about comics, um, and you were editor in chief there um, for a while as well. How,
2: for just under a year. How yeah. was that experience? Oh god, it was so stressful and tiring. <laughs> really? Um, I liked it too, but it it was it was it was basically a real job Um, except it was completely for free um i put in so much time and work i don't even when i stopped um i i didn't know what to do i i had nothing to do all day every day and i i couldn't i didn't have anything to fill my time with um because my my paid work i do little bits here and there but mostly it's um stuff that comes like in about the space of a week every month and i just do a load then so then the three other weeks of the month i had nothing so i watched every single episode of criminal minds <laughs> which has 13 seasons oh wow <laughs> every single one <laughs> which gives maybe the impression of of how much um, how much focus and and uh, time and effort i was i was putting into the site it was it was intense
0: yeah, I was going to say that's a, that's like an interesting kind of unit of, of being able to quantify how much work you put into being an editor-in-chief. It's like, well, how, mu- how much work did you do? What well, about 13 seasons of Criminal worth? That's the equivalent. Like, that's on the other side of the scale to balance them out.
2: Yeah, and, and the spin-off, um, International wow. whatever it was, with Gary Sinise, I also watched that, which is rubbish, by the way. I regret that part.
0: <laughs> you regret those? But... <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the other thirteen seasons are fine
2: oh no yeah i I, I love criminal minds. <laughs> I
0: like that oh, he good. sounds like he should be related to
1: Mr. Sneeze from the Mr Man like Gary Gary Sneeze Mr. should be like Mr. Sneeze's <gasps> son. please please call me Gary Mr. <laughs> I, sneeze I can was see my what father you
2: mean and he does kind of have like he kind of this is a little rude. I'm sorry, Gary, if you're listening, but he kind of looks as if he's held a sneeze.
0: <laughs> there are too many connections here. There's there's like a weird Mr. Men like a Roger Hargreaves conspiracy that goes all the yes, way to exactly. the top of Criminal Minds. <laughs> um so you like obviously Women Write About Comics is mm-hmm. is a brilliant site. Um how important is that kind of site, you know, to you personally, but also kind of to the to the comics landscape? And I mean that in both in the sense of in people that read and go to that site and then people that also, uh, you know, have the opportunity to, to pitch and to write for it as well?
2: Well, I would say it's immeasurable, um, both for me and for, you know, everyone. Um, it felt vital when we started, Um because Megan Megan Purdy founded it, but I hopped on pretty quickly to help her expand because I, I saw the value in it. Um, it felt important enough to do it as a full-time job for free. Um, I didn't stop because I didn't think it was worthwhile anymore. I stopped because I didn't feel that there was enough... Um, well it's hard to put into words because it will sound atrocious but I didn't feel like I was seeing enough recognition from other people of the um importance of the site. Um Right. And because I was working so much it just it wasn't that the the site itself wasn't worth it it was just that I couldn't keep going because I was putting in so much for something that I believed in that I wasn't really not that i wasn't seeing returns but it was not changing things in the noticeable way that i wanted it to yeah um not which isn't to say that it didn't matter or it didn't make any changes which you can notice because it did um but there's a difference between doing something that you know is worth it when no one has like recognizably noticed at all which is what it was to start with we were just like self-perpetuating um but once you get nominated for an Eisner it feels different it feels like okay so we've been nominated so people know that we're here and that we're like they know that we're as good as we know that we are and as useful and as meaningful but well I mean it's it's we didn't get nominated the next year and that just kind of felt like, like we'd sort of peaked in terms of outside recognition rather than inside recognition. And it just, because we'd had, like, because we'd gone that high on the sort of normal, regular scale, then, like, it seemed that the project itself seemed like a different shape. It seemed like something that belonged to... To a different landscape than the like upstart underdog thing that we'd started as, and it just it's it was too much. Um, like mental, when you're pushing and you've got no one behind you,
0: right? Yeah, it's
2: somehow easier than when you're pushing and you've got people behind you, but they've sort of stopped to chat. You see what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Like so, almost as though you know, with with before the eyes and the you you know, you pushed and you you know, you kind of thought, well, you know, we're not, we're, up, we're pushing, but no, no one's seeing. But then with yeah. the eyes of the you know, you, you knew that people were seeing, but you still weren't kind of potentially seeing the the benefits or the results of that almost, or the kind of the results that you wanted to see. But you didn't have that kind of, that almost kind of blindness almost, you know, you kind of thinking, well, you know, potentially people aren't seeing us, but then now they are, you know, they are seeing you. However, you know you're not seeing you're not seeing the results that you'd want to see kind of thing
2: yeah it just it started to seem foolish almost to to do it for free if people like no no one can pretend that it was just something that wasn't getting noticed people want to read it and it's good content and but there's just no one to pay for it and there's no one it just I can't I can't find the words, but it it became different, and it became too much to do on my own, which I wasn't the only editor, but I was the project manager for those 10 months, I think it was, but prior to which I was features editor, which is also quite a lot of work. Um, It was just, there's so much organisation involved in running a site like that, because we were publishing every single day, multiple times, and that's a lot of essays and they all get edited and they all get proofed and they all have to be arranged and scheduled and, and you have to find people to write all the time. You have to go and find, like, you can't just wait for people to pitch because they're shy and people maybe don't know. You have to go and find them all the time. You have to make sure people are getting to the right editor. You have to make sure the editor knows who everyone is. You have to make sure we're getting books from the publishers. And We have to make sure they're going to the right editor. And from there, they're going to the right person who's writing about them. And so on and so on and so on. It's it's It was just so much.
0: Yeah. And one of the difficult things I think of, you know, in comics journalism at the moment is is that there's there's fast becoming kind of two streams, really, where you know there's the the stuff that Al mentioned earlier about the kind of the people that are going out there and like doing the clickbait and the, and the lists and the you know you'll never believe what wolverine's up to this week kind of stuff which pays the money and then you've got the other stream where it's you know it's the passionate it's the it's the long-form essays it's the discussion of of things that aren't necessarily mainstream but it's still people that care and people that put a lot of hard work and effort in and that's not where sponsorships come from that's not where money tends to tends to feed to um and so it can it feels as though the you know the the need for not the need for money but the you know the
2: well yeah, the deserved, you know, the,
0: yeah yeah i suppose yeah like the i didn't want it to sound kind of crass you know but but people deserve to get paid for the work they put in um and when that isn't there it's hard to it's hard to stay motivated it's hard to find that quality content because so many sites will then divert to the other stream which is you know potentially just a little bit kind of more surface and not into substance
2: um i don't know i i wouldn't want to necessarily speak against the clickbait stuff because sometimes a clickbait title has actually a quite a good article behind it um and honestly it wasn't like it wasn't so much of a um conscious decision to stop um, as it was, I just sort of recognized that I had the same thought three times about, um, and the, the only reason, the only thing that was keeping me going as, as an editor there was, um, something that wasn't really, well, it was a reason that I wasn't proud of, so I decided that's enough, because I don't want to (laughs) be ruining myself for pride. Um, I don't. I don't know that there's such a split between the the money and the not money. I think everyone just doesn't have any money. Yeah. Um, just
0: generally, yeah. There's not enough. Like
2: money. you'll see on, for example, um, bleeding cool will have some nonsense that is making nothing out of nothing, um, but then it will also have some passionate column. From the same person um, because everybody's got to get paid somehow it's just that some people know how a bit and some don't but we all just really want to just talk about comics and uh, be interestingly critical
0: yeah and I think I think that's it at the end of the day like I mean I I've I've written for CBR you know I, I write the occasional piece for CBR and I've done lists in the past and things like that and it does it does pay money you know and I'm, I'm I don't look down on that at all and I think it's you know whatever people need to do to to get money and if they're writing about comics and writing about what they love then then fair play to them it's um it's it's just hard when there are sites that don't get any money and don't get paid and they're putting in a lot of work and a lot of, and I'd hate to to think that there are writers out there that are getting demotivated in any way. Um, good writers and good creators that are out there getting demotivated because they're not they're not getting potentially the you know the the reward that they deserve. But um,
2: yeah, um, it's I mean there there are places that you can pitch to, but I think a lot of well, part of the thing that made us found the site. Um, or at least take it in the direction that it went to become the site that it became um, was that there's? it's easy to have no confidence in what you have to say as content Um, and we took everything, we took everything that we were pitched um, except for once when someone sent me an email with a pitch but they spelt it potch I didn't take that (laughs) (laughs) um so it was supposed to be, or it is supposed to be, somewhere as a sort of launching ground, essentially. You you can come and pitch us and we will take it and we will edit it and it will be good. You will produce something good with us and publish it and that will prove, it will give you the byline and it will also give you the confidence. Um, it doesn't necessarily, like it's not a cure-all because I hate pitching. I don't pitch anywhere ever because I find it just a repulsive motion um it makes me feel very bad so i didn't do it but i can still write about comics and put it on the site which possibly is bad like maybe i am the saboteur um who should be pitching only to places that will pay me ten thousand dollars um in order to up (laughs) the you know like union rules essentially um but i don't because i don't um Well, you see, the thing is, it's hard to believe that sites are going to take your pitch when they don't come commissioning, Um, which a lot of our writers have gone to write on other sites, Um, all sorts of sites, um, because they then pitch there. One or two have been commissioned by notable sites but on the whole editors for paying sites haven't seemed to view us as the resource that we viewed ourselves as which i think is really stupid of them i guess i'll just say it
0: yeah yeah i agree seeing they need to see the value in it i think um but let's talk about bun and tea as well okay. because that's something that is a kickstarter that is coming right. out uh yes imminently
2: on the 28th actually we just we have our date now the 28th of may
0: excellent what can you tell us about that
2: mm. i just took a sip of water oh sorry <laughs> <laughs>
0: no? you, you're expecting me to go into a bit more then sorry
2: um i i, I guess it was just uh, mindless um what can i tell you well i can tell you that it is a well it's season one of bun and tea um which is Six months worth. Um, it's a subscription, basically. You you back like the Kickstarter, ideally. Um, we do have tiers for first issue only, two issues only, and so on. But the the platonic ideal is you subscribe to the first season, this six months worth, and so every month you get a magazine, a digital magazine, um, which features fifty pages of comics. Um, those 50 pages are divided up into 12 different stories. You get the first chapter of each story in the first month, the second chapter in the second, all the way through to the sixth, where all but two, I think it is, um, are just six chapters long. That's a whole story. And the ones that go longer, they're designed, these six pieces, they will it will feel like a whole chunk. It's a whole arc. Um, so it will feel finished at the end. It will be satisfying serial storytelling short chapters short stories over six months um also in each issue there'll be magaziney stuff like quizzes um features interviews things like that um because i miss the olden days when i went to the shop on saturday and bought a magazine which had fun stuff and comics in and i just read it and was happy
0: yeah, it does. I mean, you were kind enough to send us the preview, um, which uh, I think I mentioned was excellent. I um, absolutely love it. The some Thank of the you. some of the comics creators I've heard of, and some of them I've never heard of. But it's um, yeah, it was just it was really fascinating to see. Um, you know what? Did they did they pitch ideas to you, or did you have like a general kind of a theme that you wanted uh, that you were going for? Or
2: I had not a theme because i find themes quite stressful when um when anthologies are like this one the theme is steam trains or something i I get stressed out because that that's not how i personally tend to work creatively i I i don't so much start with like a gimmick to build around so the theme that i was asking for was a good story um because i i didn't want like I said I, I wanted whole stories stories that could be told completely in these short um short segments um because I'd just been reading what's it called the adventure of John Blake I think in the, which is Philip Pullman and oh, an artist whose name I've forgotten oh no their story in the phoenix um I read the collection of that and it was just it was so it had that texture of being Told to. Do you know what I mean? Like when you're little and you're in bed and someone is reading to you and you're just the story is completely everything. Um, yeah, yeah. So I I wanted that kind of feeling. Um, so I put out a tweet saying something like that, and um, a few people got in touch and a few some people had a particular story that they already they really wanted to tell, um, and some people just had a few outlines or ideas i think one one had like eight wow um and i just i looked at the way that they told me their ideas and asked for more information about the ones that seemed most like they had an end goal end game sorry Yeah. Mean words <laughs> um because i i some uh, for example Mariana Learmonth, whose um, story "The Tide" is the first chapter of it, is in the preview. Yes, yeah. Um, She had two ideas. Um, This was one of them, and the other one was um, much more open-ended. The pitch was much more slice of life kind of thing. Like she had, um, so it it had a good story texture to it, but it was more like the the setup for. for a Dungeons and Dragons campaign maybe. Um it it had it was like a premise. It wasn't a story. It was it was a flavor. Um so we talked about both a little and it was it was clear that the tide just had it had somewhere it was going. Um so that was the stronger choice. So we went with that and um developed the idea of the six chapters and it's terrific it really is just very very good
0: yeah it's it's got that kind of exciting feel about it like it is um i think adventure was the word i kind of thought of was the word that kind of came to mind and mm. all the all the kind of childlike wonder that kind of word evokes for me personally is just and i think it is because it is tied into the style of of, of magazine that you've chosen to go for as well which i think is quite is quite evocative of of the the magazines and the and the kind of uh, comic series and comic strips that we read when we were younger
2: mm. yeah it was it was important to get all of the chapters um to be as whole as the whole if you see what i mean because in in the those those stories that, that you mentioned um it was well when i when i work as a critic a complaint that i often found myself making um, with uh, serial comics, is that sometimes issues just don't feel like a whole story. They're just, you know, the middle part. Um, you know, the, the the two towers effect, the Lord of the Rings, the middle book, it, it it's fine, you know, if you've read the first one, and if you're thinking about reading the third one, but you wouldn't just pick it up and read it. It doesn't have so much of its own tension in the same way that the others do um so the tension and the structure of the um the entries was very important i really i was very strict about
0: that Mm, yeah definitely and like you mentioned um like the Phoenix as, as kind of a, a sort of an example of, of that kind of the modern way of that, mm. um, you know, finding its way onto the shelves. Um, and I know you, Al, have mentioned the Phoenix a few times, haven't you? You've, you get that quite often for your um, for your family. Uh, yeah, I've got um, <clears throat> my own kids are actually slightly too young for it
1: still, but I've got nieces and nephews for whom we've been buying the Phoenix for, gosh, five or six years now um the thing is that we live in edinburgh and they live in cornwall so we buy it for them by subscription and we never see
0: it oh right (laughs) (laughs) oh no (laughs) that's the curse i was going to say at least you get a chance to read it before you send it on but
1: no sadly
0: yeah, is that, is that the kind of, like that kind of magazine, which, I mean, we'll talk about later when we talk about um, your pick for the episode, Claire. But mm-hmm. um, is that kind of um, magazine something that you have any experience with when you were younger, Al?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like so many people, I was, um, anthology comics are something which is so ingrained in the British comics um, landscape. that I think it's very difficult to grow up in, in britain or it was at the time without having some exposure to them i mean, i think nowadays when kids are, are getting comics a lot of them are you know polybagged tie-ins to tv shows that have got five bits of plastic stuck to the cover and you know they might have one strip or you know even just illustrated story inside and most of it is you know it's puzzles and Colouring in page and things like that. Um, so I think it's it's a bit more difficult now. I mean, it's obviously you still get things like you know the Beano and stuff like that, but the kind they're more humour oriented. Whereas um, comics that have got more of an anthology approach, but also um, more serious strips in them, are um, much fewer and more far between now.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean,
1: when I was a kid, what got me into comics on a full-time basis was um, Marvel UK's Transformers comic, which I think is,
0: you know, yeah. like
1: like an awful lot of people. Um, that was a a window into, um, I suppose grown-up comics. Because I mean, I was never, I was never a 2000 AD person. I guess 2000 AD is one of the other kind of long-running yeah, success really, really
2: stories. The last holdout.
0: Yeah, it's the big big example of that, isn't it? Really, yeah. Mm um
1: but that was that was never my scene really um whereas things like transformers was definitely my scene i think partly because you know i was 10 years old and it was a a story that was essentially this kind of big sweeping melodrama religious space opera war comic for children and um it was kind of snuck through without you know at that point the the licensor hasbro just wasn't paying the slightest bit of attention to what was going into the comic and they could just do whatever they liked really
0: i think that's the um that's one of the the better examples really of kind of licensed comics being I think something you can look back on and go, actually, there was a lot more there, you know, whereas I think a lot of the licensed comics I read were just like Sonic the Hedgehog and, and things like that. And like the real ghostbusters and things that were stuff that I, I saw on television and, and, Suddenly, there was like there was a comic of it that I think my nan or my granddad were just like, oh, I've seen him watch that blue hedgehog. I'll buy him this magazine with a blue hedgehog mm. on the front. Um, <laughs> which is a shame, really, because I'd like to look back and have a bit more of a, you know, well, actually, you know, the the deeper meanings of, uh, you know, the, the rise of communism in the <laughs> East was, uh, you know, depicted with robotnik and, and things, but I don't think it was that uh, <laughs> that that deep, unfortunately. Yes,
1: does shadow the hedgehog represent communism? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, which I'm sure there's a whole Tumblr thread about that already as we speak. Oh, but um, but that's like absolutely the, that's doubtless the, the Sonic the Sonic fandom is uh, is is a strange beast that I don't really want to tackle.
2: Much like Sonic himself.
0: But yeah, much like Sonic himself at the mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, the, the strange little CGI monkey that he is. Um, the reason I've brought you uh, both here, um, apart from um, to talk with you, uh, is to find out uh, about some comics that are important to you uh, and significant to you in some way. Um, and uh, Al, we'll start with you. Uh, what uh, what comic did you decide to bring with you uh, to the show?
1: Um, I decided to go with something. Um, I thought I tried to sort of broaden people's horizons a little bit and bring in like a little gem <laughs> that they might not like, heard of before? An indie classic. Uh, an indie classic, yeah. So, sort of black and white indie filth, really. Mm. Um, so, no, obviously not doing that. That's um, <laughs> patently ludicrous. Um, no, I have picked the second <clears throat> issue of the 1991 relaunch of The X Men by Chris Clearmont and Jim Lee. This.
0: Um... I think this is one of those issues to me uh, that was of it's of an era that if you talk about the X-Men to many people, this is the kind of era that they think of. Um, if they're not brought up on the movies, then if they're if they're like slightly older than the the people that brought up on the movies, this is the kind of X Men that <laughs> they're talking about. You can it, Matt.
1: Just... I'm I'm of that same <laughs> age group. I don't, I'm
0: damning myself with this praise as well by kind of um, you know. But we're we're the generation that grew up watching the X Men cartoon, and you know, and, and what and getting the comics where it was like the the blue and gold teams, and mm. and this is this is that era, of, you know, smack dab in the middle, isn't it? Really, I mean, this is the month after the biggest selling comic of all time or you know at least it yeah. was mm-hmm. um but uh, but why did you choose this issue specifically
1: when i was uh content warning for body horror and um, when i was eight years old i fell on a concrete floor and i smashed my teeth to pieces basically oh, no. And um, my two front teeth, which I had not had for very long, were (sighs) absolutely atomised. And I spent the next many, many, many years having a variety of different dental treatments. But um, it involved me age, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old, doing a lot of travelling from Ayrshire where I lived up to Glasgow on the train to go to the dental hospital in Glasgow and one day having gone through the miseries of the trips to appointments at the dental hospital because as you can imagine it wasn't fun stuff that was being done there um, I was going to get the train home with my mum and I was 11 years old And we went to the train station uh, and there was a, well, back then it was John Menzies, but, you know, nowadays it would be a, you know, a WH Smith. And they used to have, there was a a comics distributor called Comag. And they used to just get, like, job lots of American comics and sell them in British newsagents and they'd stick these huge barcode stickers on them that said Comag across them. And you could, like, if you wanted to collect a run of a comic, then you were out of luck, pal, because there was absolutely no chance you were going to get the same thing there month on month. But one comic that they had in that newsagent that day was X-Men issue two. Now, I had been vaguely aware of the existence of the X-Men before, because I had been bought... (laughs) of all things to have as my first collection of comics I had been bought a compilation of issues of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe Ah. (laughs) and it had Nightcrawler on the front Uh, I think it was Mr. Fear to Quicksilver was the the particular (laughs) volume A classic Oh absolutely and Nightcrawler was on the front of that and That was my introduction to the X-Men. And I remember, like, I read it cover to cover. Like, my original copy, I've got another copy now, but my original copy of that book just fell to pieces because of, you know, multiple thousands of readings. But I was doing things like, you know, there would be uh, an entry for somebody who would reference the Beast as a character. And I'd be like, I have no idea who the beast is. I don't know what the beast looks like. And I remember (laughs) in the entry for uh, Phoenix, one of the panels that's used to illustrate, because all the the entries have got like half a dozen panels taken from comics, um, used to illustrate was from, I think it was from a John Romita drawn issue or a Paul Smith drawn issue and in that panel there is a large shaggy pot plant and i thought is that the beast is that what the beast looks like is that is that him it looks like a beast it it could be a plant but it looks like a beast i think
2: you're a bit ahead of your time, (laughs) then.
1: i mean they turned him into looking like a a cat and then you know they turned him into looking like a a a monster kind of thing but they never have yet gone down the, I think, obvious route of having them look like a massive pop plan. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I didn't know much about the X-Men, but I knew of the X-Men. And then I got this, I was like, oh, okay, great. The X-Men, let's get this. You flip it open to the first page, and the first page of this issue is Magneto glowering at the, the reader and... It's amazing. It's a fantastic picture. One of the things that makes it absolutely sing is the colours on it. Joe Roses is the colourist on this issue and just does this glorious kind of... like, it's, it's, it's all done with, uh, you know, it's, it's still dots and everything. It's not computer cell separations and so on like you would have in later years. know, well, this is pre the advent of Malibu or Digital Chameleon and all these kinds of things. But it's just so glorious the way that um, there is a spread and progression of tone across the page that changes um, even on surfaces that are the same color in different parts of the picture they are a different tone on the page um because they're somewhere there's a different light source you know they're the way that it's colored is so sympathetic and it's just so incredibly well done and it's an incredibly expressive picture of magneto like he's really grr, he looks like he needs more fiber he is really an angry fella. And age 11, I was like, oh, he's a bit angry. What's next? <laughs> and then the next page is a two-page spread of Magneto squaring off against the X-Men. You've got Psylocke, Wolverine, Gambit, Rogue, Cyclops, and the Beast looking less poplante than I would have liked, but I will take what was there. And so I was looking at this, age you know, 11, and going... Who are all these people? Who is the guy in the coat? Who is the girl with the skunk stripe in her hair? Where is Nightcrawler? Um,
0: (laughs) Where's Mr. Fear?
1: (laughs) Exactly. I was was given unrealistic expectations of what the Marvel Universe should involve. Where is Quasimodo?
0: (laughs) Where's the pages and pages of text?
1: (laughs) Exactly. And that three pages was it. That was me um that did it Mm. that's why i'm here now talking to you (laughs) that was like i just read it i thought i need to know everything about this i need to know who all these people are there is an entire world here that i have just dipped the tiniest tip of my toe into but i know from looking at this that there is so 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 much more here and i can get into this and i did
0: i think it's fascinating because this double page spread like i'm looking at it now and it is um it's almost the exact replica of like the it's like but flipped of the previous month's cover so like x-men number Mm. one you know has got that you know fantastic wraparound cover that everyone kind of recognizes even if they don't think they know it they know it um and this is you know this is not only is it like very similar layout, you know, the X-Men kind of squaring off in like similar poses, foreground and background against Magneto, but it's almost the the scene, the exact same scene, I imagine. Um, it's been a few years since I've read like this whole arc, but I imagine this is what is being depicted on the front cover of issue number one. Um, and so, you know, this, it's quite, uh, it's quite interesting that the, you know, the the scene or the pages that got you into comics, full stop, you know, really, or got you into Marvel Comics, at least, was, um, you know, was a, a kind of a the contextualization of one of the most famous, you know, covers of all time, really.
1: Mm. And you can, you know, Jim Lee gets a lot of slating nowadays, but man, he can draw your right eye across a page, can't he? Like mm. the structure of that mm. is really just terrific. And the way that Tom Moriszewski has lettered it, like the the layout of the lettering is just terrific. And I think it's an object lesson as well. Chris Claremont writes a lot of words per page normally. And yeah, there's plenty of dialogue there, but nobody is saying too much. Nobody is trying to drop too much information in there. He knows that this is the opening salvo of this issue. And you don't want to overcook it. Like, just, just sear the steak. Don't make it well done. On your yeah. first three pages,
0: yeah, absolutely, um, and it's it's one of those issues as well. I mean, there is a lot happening in this issue. It is like quite a dense issue generally, but it's I think it's of its it's you know of that era really, as you say, and also it is it is Chris Claremont, so it's you know it's kind of a given for that. Mm. Um, but I think you're right about Jim Lee in this in that sense because um, ironically the the first Marvel comic that I read uh like the first kind of version of this that wasn't like a uh like a uk annual or something like this the first kind of floppy american comic i got was uh fantastic four number two which was um volume two number two which was kind of heroes reborn era oh, yeah. um and that was i i that was an issue number two so that wasn't the first issue like this and that was also jim lee that penciled that as well and
1: yeah, um, namor was yeah that the... was it they
0: they man. started off against the Mole Man and then they were sucked up to the, uh, the helipad or the helicarrier Met Shield and then they were thrown down into the depths to meet with Namor and that similarly kind of blew my mind as well and that kind of opens up an entire world of, of Marvel comics for you um, and in, in much the similar way that you described this does for you as well. Um, Claire you have a bit of an affinity for the X-Men. Um, I have um, mm. read a few of your pieces including the one in Panel, Panel X Panel which was about the end of the X-Men uh, which was not long after this mm-hmm. issue um, about, about 28 issues after this wasn't it, The Wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey Yes
2: yeah, What did you think
0: she. of this issue?
2: Well it's just perfect really isn't it um, it's just so good because <laughs> <The colors. laughs> beautiful the art beautiful there are enough panels on every page everyone is saying enough to keep every page catch if you if you only saw one page if you found it on the ground torn out you'd be like how do i get the rest it's it's just good comics i um recently i've i've kind of been um questioning my um assertions about superhero comics honestly because I've always been a fan of the x-men from the cartoon I didn't start reading the comics till I was like 15 or something um but then I went back and read a ton of older stuff as well um and I bought mostly Claremont and I've always said I don't understand why people make such a fuss about literary comics um and you know in particular Watchmen I wish people wouldn't make such a fuss about Watchmen and say it's this different beast um because my experience of superhero comics has been literary um Claremont's X-Men is just so good um it has themes it has character it has so much metaphor um, that I I respond to it in exactly the same way as I respond to any quality media, um, and I haven't strayed like really very far outside of um, of that like bit quality base. Um, I've read plenty of other comics, but they've all been of comparable quality. Um, recently, I have been reading further out of bounds um, and some of them really suck and I'm, I'm re-evaluating um, my impression of the entire landscape because I think I've been so lucky in um, just finding the genuinely good stuff before I found the
0: rest. Um, right, yeah. So you, your impression of superhero comics was was quite high because you yeah. you'd gone in and you'd you know you'd set the bar very high for yourself. But there then... was
2: there was nothing that I was seeing to be missing from the genre in like in terms of how genres stack up against each other or how if you call literary nature a genre, then the genre of superheroes did not seem to be falling behind the genre of, you know, proper in quotes books by my experience.
0: Yeah. And I think if you were going to, you know, if you were if you were going to follow that kind of logic and, and someone else approached you and said, I've never read superhero comics before, you know, give me something that epitomizes everything that you love about superhero comics. I think I would give them Claremont's X-Men as well. Because I think that is that is a perfect example of of superhero comics and i think superhero fiction generally i think it's got everything that mm-hmm. you everything that you'd need to to show to someone in order to say this is why i love superhero comics this is why i love comics generally you know um yeah look i, I do love it and i love i love this reading this issue made me want to go back and and dive into these ones because i i've read I think I've, I've read a lot of, of Claremont's Claremont stuff, like over. You know, I, I can't say I've read everything, but at the same time, I um, I focused more on the older stuff. Whereas my experience with the the stuff from the '90s isn't as in depth. I mean, obviously, he left shortly after this, anyway, didn't he? Really, it was, it was there wasn't many issues after this issue where he where he continued on, was he? Um, but uh, but yeah, so the stuff before this as well was um, was still excellent as well and worth kind of worth diving into. Um, did you feel Al as uh, as a as a young child? Do you, how do you feel like this comic has shaped your kind of comics reading experience, or you as a comics fan?
1: Gosh, um, in terms of how it shaped my comics reading, it gave me a taste for stuff that had a deep bench of continuity available. Mm. So, you know, if I wanted to go and find more X-Men comics and goodness knows there was enough of them, even at that point, you know, I could have gone and gotten into uncanny X-Men. I could have gotten into Excalibur. I could have gotten into, um, at that point I could have gotten into X-Force even should I have wanted to do that. Um, although I never really did. I kind of did a little bit, not really a little bit. Um, So it meant for me that things that were really straightforward and really upfront and really kind of, I don't want to say obvious because that sounds very reductive, but things that, you know, I didn't really read like a lot of solo hero stuff. I read a bunch of team stuff because they had loads more characters. And if I liked the team, I might go and read the solo characters own books or whatever. But what I wanted was dense stuff. I wanted stuff that had history. Like, I I know that in, you know, in the real world, if I got really interested in history and started reading books on history, then I'm never going to read every book on history. I'm never going to find out everything that has ever happened. I'm never going to be somebody who knows the minutiae of the whole sweep of human endeavour. And similarly with the X-Men, you know, I don't think anybody, well, well, that's not true, there's at least one, but I don't think many people <laughs> could say, you know, I know literally everything about this. And it's the same with so many comics that are long running. You know, I mm. could have gotten into Green Lantern, for example, had this been a Green Lantern comic that i picked up. I mean, I probably wouldn't because Hal Jordan is absolute dirt worst but um (laughs) you know i could have gotten into justice league or something like that i could have gotten into legion but it was the x-men and from there it was the marvel universe and my great loves in superhero comics have always been the kind of c and d list characters because there is a lot of stuff there like that you know if i You know, I've got my Marvel Unlimited subscription and I spend the whole time spelunking the depths of D-list characters reading, you know, 1970s Michael Morbius strips from Adventure into Fear or whatever. You know, those sorts of things. Vampire Tales. Um, Or you know, when they put the entire runs of things like Tomb of Dracula or Master of Kung Fu on there, which had been out of print other than, you know, quite expensive collected editions uh, for years. And, your know, Master of Kung Fu was only available in omnibus editions for a good couple of years. Um, well, they are now bringing it out more affordably. Um, you know, that stuff goes on to Unlimited and it's 150 issues or something. Mm. And that is just, that makes my eyes light up. <laughs> you know i can spend months just reading stuff that you know i people read this stuff in the 70s or they read it in the 60s or they read it in the 80s and it feels like a tether back to another generation of comics readers people who you know lots of them and this is going to sound morbid lots of them are dead now you know? <laughs> and lots of the ones who aren't dead don't read comics now. And lots of them that did read these things in the 70s were 10 years old. And the ones that read them that were 30 years old were not reading them when they were 40 years old. And there were generations and generations of people for whom these comics that nobody cares about now. You know, nobody cares about five issues that were published of Black Goliath, right? Hmm. But they're all on Marvel Unlimited, and I also own physical copies of all of them. And they are... <laughs> they're, they're not the greatest example of a comic that's ever been produced, but somebody spent a month drawing that, and they got paid an honest living to do it. And they, they put them out into the world... And people bought them and read them and enjoyed them, and it feels like like reading the little unappreciated stuff from the you know the, the back and of beyond of, um, of comics history, or, or particularly superhero comics history, which is so thankless. And you know, you look back at comics that were produced, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago, three, three, four, five, six, seven, eight decades ago. And it's exactly the same problems that you've got now, which is people don't own their stuff, people don't get paid enough to do it, people have no security in what they're doing, they get no benefit from their employer, they create intellectual property for some people that go off and make an enormous amount of money off of that IP later. Mm. And what they end up doing is living in retirement homes and putting up GoFundMe's. Yeah. And yeah. it's the same mm. it is the same song for eight decades but for a month that was what paid their mortgage and to be able Mm -hmm. to go back and read that stuff and go like i i'll appreciate that again for you now it was just a day's work for you it was just something you did so you could buy your kids shoes but i'm gonna read that now because that's a connection back to something that somebody put work into um that's a very long walk away from your original question,
0: <laughs> and also from from this issue as well, because it's uh, we, we oh, you're talking about like the, the smallest who ever issues. Got paid. Yeah, yeah, my word. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I I like what you I like what you're saying because I think uh, also I feel like you you get the sense of the era that these comics are produced in the smaller comics as well because the you know, the issues of like X Men and Spider Man and Avengers and things are not only ha- were they, you know, um resurrected and, and and re and reprinted and retold and over and over again at the time, but obviously they're they're being, you know, dredged up again in in the more modern era for, you know, movies and and like articles calling back to these important issues and things. Whereas no one's calling back to kind of Tuma Dracula or, you know, as you say, like the five issues of Black Goliath or something like that, which um, you know, which they should be, because there's still there's stuff to mine there. But at the same time, those issues those bigger issues, like the the death of Jean Grey and you know um, the Dark Phoenix saga and things like that, or you know um, bigger stories like Infinity Gauntlet and things like that, are are constantly referenced to the point where they no longer feel as though they came out in the time they came out. You know they 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 feel like classic comics, but they're something that gets talked about and, and read constantly. Yeah. Whereas the smaller issues feel more like you're seeing a glimpse into. Marvel Comics in 1975 um, because that's that's the bread and butter. You know, they've got the big stuff going on that is going to continue on, whereas these are the things that are out for a month and then potentially disappear within five, you know, and never never to resurface again until they get kind of someone scans them into Marvel Unlimited or whatever they do with Marvel Unlimited. Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. And things like, you know, Choose Black Lives as an example, you know, that character appeared in uh, ant-man and the wasp you know it it wasn't created for the black goliath comic you know it was a, a he was a supporting character years before but you know the the thought that somebody might get paid who had contributed to the creation of that character then which then goes on to be used you know Lawrence fishburne goes and plays him in a movie you know is that sufficient did they get sufficient recompense? Well, we're never going to know what they got, but, you know, these movies make an awful lot of money. And it all goes eventually to Disney shareholders. And it's just, you know, it, it's the the whole comics will break your heart thing. I think we talk, to, we talk a lot about how comics break your heart. We don't talk enough about how swans will break your arm, but, I mean, that's... <laughs> That's yeah. Because that's because we're frightened of them. A different podcast. Yeah, yeah comi- comics will break your arm if one of <laughs> if one of those Chris Ware books falls off a shelf.
0: <laughs> and swans will break your heart. Is the exactly. other side of that? <laughs>
1: oh, don't, don't even start me on them.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I bought, I bought a I bought it's a, a painful form. memory. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, let's talk about happier memories then. Um, Claire, tell us about the comic that you've brought with you for the show.
2: Uh, my comic that I've brought with me is um, 50 Years' Worth of Bunty. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: yeah, pick I. This one. I... <laughs> you couldn't pick a specific issue, like the March 1962 issue. Was
2: or because they were weekly, so there are a lot? Oh, they
0: were weekly as well, weren't they? Yeah. 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 Well, I. I kind of smiled ear to ear when you sent that uh, email let me know because I've got very fond memories of um of the Bunty and Mandy and uh and I think Jackie as well was another mm-hmm. one. Um but uh, but you tell me what are your why did you decide to bring that with you onto the show?
2: Well Bunty was my first comic um much well even earlier actually than than i discovered the X-Men. Um I'm pretty sure that I was almost five because I remember when I got it and I'm pretty sure that my my little sister hadn't been born yet because I don't think she's in the room in the memory um I was ill and my mum was ill um and my dad came home early and brought my mum a magazine and he brought me bunty um and I was I was I felt like is this is this really for me because this this looks like it looks like a big girls magazine i don't know if i'm old enough for this. are you sure you got this right dad because <laughs> i guess i was a good little girl um <laughs> it, it had a picture of a girl on the front like a real a photograph um and it's got bunty for girls on the top and it's got um headlines you know like like a a magazine like cosmo or whatever it was that my mum got. I think it probably was Cosmopolitan. It, it looks the same, just younger, um, with cheaper paper, and there's a child on the front. But Bunty was a, a magazine, much like Bun and Tea, um, <laughs> that featured many strips, short comics, um, mostly a couple of pages long, like two to six, maybe. Maybe eight, I don't know. Um, a couple of strips like newspaper strips style style stuff. Um it usually had a few competitions, um, a letters page, quizzes. Um I've got Google images up so I can tell you that at least once there was a David Charvet Baywatch pinup included. Which wow. um I, I wasn't old enough for Bunty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wasn't old enough for that Bunty anyway.
2: Um and, yeah, it had some regular strips about regular characters like the four Marys, um, who were four girls who went to boarding school together, and they all happened to be called Mary, and they're all best friends. Um, there were Mary Cotter and Mary Radley and Mary Simpson and Mary Field, but, of course, they're all very jolly, so they'd call each other Cotty and Raddy and Simpy, which is just awful, and Field, <laughs> which is rubbish. Um, but they all had a different hairstyle. And they all had a slightly different basic background and they just went around having adventures. Um, Like for example, in the very oldest strips, because the four Marys were in Bunty at the debut in 1958, I think it was. Um, And back then they did things like catch hooded burglars who were going into caves and planning theft, probably. I don't know. Um, But by the (laughs) nineties, when I was reading, they were doing things like, um, noticing that the two mean girls had painted over the signature of a local artist's painting in order to win the school prize and saving people from holes when they went camping on islands and things like that so it's basically your enid Blyton style adventure story um the same essential stories just over and over and over 50 years um but the Four Marys changed with the eras. Their hairstyles became more modern and, and their school uniforms became more modern and stuff. But there were other strips like um, eventually they introduced the comp because the Four Marys were a bit too posh because boarding school has got less and less common as we came further and further away from 1958. Um, the comp was about people that are normal high school. Um, it had boys in. Um and they had the same slightly more grange hillish kind of adventures um less caves less robes and hoods more like soap opera type stuff but still emotionally high stakes yeah. um and there were strips like about girls who had jobs and girls who had talents and girls who had dreams and you you could have like a gymnastics career and then maybe you went blind but you still managed or maybe you were an air hostess and you had to look after a little kid who was just awful but then you kept your integrity and the kid was like oh I'm being so terrible and became good or um, just all sorts of things it was just it was always stories about girls and the girls were important and the girls were fantastic and it was basically I think the first time that I had experienced pop culture that prioritized the personhood of girls mm. because the, the TV shows I remember from my childhood were like Thomas the Tank Engine and Sesame Street and Fireman Sam um, and Postman Pat, which a couple of those had like one girl, but they weren't the main character and they always had a brother who was at least equally present in the story. So the brother kind of won out just because of patriarchy. Um, So there weren't really any female presences in the pop arena until I discovered Bunty. Um, So she kind of loomed large in in my history. and I I, I read Bunty for quite a few years, and then I switched to Girl Talk, which was just for slightly older girls. Um, And then by the time I became a teenager, I'd forgotten that I read Bunty. Like I didn't think of myself as someone who read comics, um, because no one ever spoke about that that kind of comics when they spoke about comics. Because I was mostly only seeing people talking about comics on the internet, rather than um, in my school life or home life. Because I went to an all-girls school, and girls still weren't encouraged, still aren't encouraged to investigate um, like adult comics or the American market. So the only place I was seeing it were uh, live journal basically. And it was always American comics, long running stuff like the X-Men. I was like, oh, yeah, I used to like the X-Men cartoon. I bet I would like the comics too. I, I, I feel like I'm a person who likes comics, even though I don't really know that I've ever seen comics. But then somehow, eventually, I think I found an old annual or something. And I realized I did read comics. Comics are a part of my formative reading self and i started buying old copies on ebay and stuff because i just i couldn't believe that i'd forgotten so completely and i couldn't believe that they that it had been such an important source of entertainment in the first place it was like this whole crazy rush
0: and that's why i think i was so excited when you mentioned bringing bunty on because to me i I think Bunty and Mandy and those kind of comics were what got me into comics tangentially because my, oh. I grew up with, uh, with my mom and my two aunts, her two sisters, and they would always get, uh, bunty and mandy for themselves and then they'd buy me the beano and i'm fairly certain that the only reason they bought me comics in the first place is to so i wouldn't feel left out when they got comics <laughs> and so i there's a photo of my mom when she's like six or seven and she's reading comics like she's reading like there's like three bunty's on the table so i assume there's like one mm-hmm. for each of the sisters um and, <laughs> and she's kind of pouring over one of them and i and i remember you Know they every Christmas they get the Bunty annual and then they buy a Beano annual for me. Um, and that would be kind of our boxing day, like present mm. kind of thing. We'd have that and we'd sit and read that in the afternoon. Um, but you're, so you're exactly right, like, yeah. It was a different time, wasn't it? But I think also, like, I like you, I didn't associate the Beano really, or but more specifically, like the Bun- Bunty and, and Mandy as comics. Um, but they absolutely were you know and they you know they absolutely were the still they're the same kind of comics that we're reading today you know they had the same kind of format but they were in a different structure within like a serialized mm-hmm. magazine um but they were no real different to um to any kind of anthology um of comics really yeah. um much like what you're doing with Bonanti obviously um but yeah but but similar to that and I, I think I wonder why that is that You know, we have that kind of mental block of that kind of that form of of comics don't seem to register as comics to us.
2: I think it's probably just because of America. Yeah. The American format is so prioritized and the British scene is so small that we're it's hard to remind each other.
0: Yeah. And I suppose when people talk about, if if I say to someone who doesn't read or is familiar with comics, I say, oh, I read comics, they go, oh, like Batman and Spider-Man, you know, so they, so, you know, an extension of that is almost superheroes just generally, isn't it really, I suppose?
2: It is. But I mean, there were superheroes in Bunty, um, with and without powers. And there were, I don't know why it doesn't permeate in the same way, but they are, they are the same. I I don't, I don't know why, why we don't think that way.
0: I looked up on Wikipedia because I wanted to know the you know the specifics of when Bunty ran from and to, and you you said it yourself, nineteen fifty eight to two thousand and one. But what surprised me was that it said that it put, they published two thousand two hundred and forty nine issues because um, it was weekly for for so many mm-hmm. years, and then I think only the last five months of its life it went monthly, um, and when well, it ended in two thousand and one. Um, But one of the things that made me laugh, because I saw The Four Marys, like, oh, I remember The Four Marys. Um, And it (laughs) says, uh, often had problems with studying, being bored or helping other girls (laughs) or teachers.
2: (laughs) It is so relatable.
0: (laughs) It is, yeah. You rarely read comics these days about people just being bored and what they do about that. Um, But yeah, so you were saying, Al, you have no kind of real um, memory of Bunty. But we talked earlier about kind of serialized comics, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and it is definitely a UK thing. I mean, anytime you see US anthologies, I mean, the only one I can think of that ran for any sort of great length of time was um, Marvel Comics Presents, which got uh, like 150 issues out. Mm. But mm. nowadays, when you get comics companies, occasionally superhero publishers will try to bring out. Like specials or whatever that have got six, five page stories or whatever. And they're never any good because US comics writers aren't trained to write a full story in five pages. In the way that, you know, if you've mm. got, you know, 2000 AD is not my cup of tea. But see, Future Shocks in 2000 AD, they are an absolute boot camp in writing a full story. An entire plot plus a mandatory twist yeah. in you know, four or five <laughs> pages. And they are they are an incredibly difficult thing to do well. And I think because they are short, they look easy and they're so not easy. Versus when you get, yeah. um, you know, what was it just recently? Was Superman or Action Comics 1000. And it had a bunch of stories in it. And almost all of them were rubbish. Yeah, Just dreadful.
2: <laughs> they tend to waste so much time. And I think that I always say this about comics that do this, but it's because it's true. It's it's the editor's fault because you can reign in a writer. You just have to tell them what to do. You You just have to... Make it clear that if they have wasted all of their five pages, they have wasted all of their time. You just have to condense it. You just have to like help them identify the important part and just pull it back to that. It it, it you it can be done even if you haven't been trained for that format. Yeah, you can do it if someone helps you yeah, to do it.
1: It, it needs an air to be able to say. Excuse me, Brian. Stroke Jeff. Stroke Tom what is the story (laughs) here you know not just um here's five pages of a vignette about superman sits in the daily planet and after three pages of him thinking about how funny (laughs) lois is he goes to rescue a boy from being hit by a car and the boy looks up at him and you can see the boy is wearing a superman t-shirt and that says something about superman Probably, <laughs> it's, you know, it's just what. What is your story here? Yeah, you know, if that was an Al Ewing comic, then in those five pages, Superman would have saved the universe three times, and it would have turned out no. that actually Lex Luthor was Superman all along, or something like that. You know, you would have had an enormous, like a full story, an enormous st- structured epic within a very small number of pages, because yeah. somebody like Al Ewing was trained. At 2000 AD to write these and, and grew up reading 2000 AD, these very short, um, punchy five page stories which have got zero fat on them.
2: That's partly why I think um, I still buy these older comics because you can get them on eBay. They're, they're generally not that expensive because it's proof. It, it can be done. You can learn it from these old, like, these are just throwaway things that. People, it's it's like you were saying, Al, That the stuff that you read on on unlimited, that this stuff that this was just someone's weekly gig, and they just turn them in every week, over and over and mm. over, and it's it's study material, and it's there, but it's yeah, I guess not being capitalised on by the people who right now need to be capitalising upon it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at for example, somebody goes and buys. The book that is the complete alan moore future shocks then that's a really interesting one because lots and lots of those stories that are in that book of alan moore future shocks are crap <laughs> <Like they're just laughs> that was not where i was expecting you to go <laughs> the thing is, that's alan moore you know he's the guy who who wrote you know swamp thing and he wrote um You know, he wrote Watchmen. He wrote an an enormous amount of truly wonderful comics. But Alan Moore having to write a five-page future shock every week can't produce gold every week. Mm. Nobody can do that. But what you need to do is you need to hone your craft and hone your skill and and flex your muscles enough that you are operating at, at the best level that you can be operating at, so that more of the things you put out are good than the things you put out that are bad.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like that's to me is one of the reasons why I love um reading silver age especially silver age DC because there's usually multiple stories in there. There's usually about seven modern comics worth of storytelling in one page, mm. and everything kind of gets wrapped up by the end of the story. Like that, the most ridiculous things can happen. Like you know, Jimmy Olsen gets turned into a tortoise man, um, but in one panel at the end, they explain that oh, we gave him a serum and he's fine now. <laughs> and it's like M. <laughs> it's so, it's so brutal, but at the same time, it's so entertaining because something is happening all the time, mm. and it's um it's just because i think that was also as well the time when it was you know constant creation and everything was new because nothing had been done before it's like so of course there's a turtle man and of course there's you know there's a 50 foot lowest lane and of course there's you know there's all these things because it's the first time anyone's ever done that um but yeah but one one final thing because i know that we've, uh, we've run over a little bit one final thing i wanted to talk to you both about is what i loved about the the selections that you both made is you both had these very evocative stories that come along with them you know so uh, for you al it was it was your, your horrifying body <laughs> body horror experience oh, um,
1: believe me that's I the know. pg13 version
0: of it, I, like I bet I it kiss. is yeah, we'll, I can give we'll you a we'll, much, yeah. no, I no, no, a no, much more
1: Cronenbergian version Never of this. Never tell me the rest.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, well I'll do like an a watershed version of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> you can come back. Yeah. Um and then for you, obviously Claire, it was, you know, this this image that you was so clear in your mind that you can even pinpoint the date because your memory is so clear that you know mm-hmm. that your sister wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um and that's and that's kind of one of the things I love about About comics and especially formative comics is the fact that they're not just you know you you both described it and I described it with my comics as well being engrossed in this in the story but clearly there was more to this memory than just the comic Um, and one of the things I wanted to kind of get your opinions on really both of you is just you know what what is it about comics especially those early comics that become such um, you know, such evocative and kind of foundational parts of, of your memory when, you know, when you're looking back?
1: Hmm. It's
0: a big question. It is a bit. It may be either big slash very poorly worded. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think part of it probably is to do with the age at which we get into these things. Hmm. Like, I don't know if if I had read X-Men issue 2, Without having read any comics before, when I was twenty, would I have had the same reaction to it as I did when I was eleven? Probably not. And part of it is, as you get older, you fill in spaces in yourself with the things that you like. You basically are you. You're, you are your own blank sticker album, and you plug things into the spaces, and those things patchwork together to become you as a sort of human quilt. That sounds quite sort of uh, Hannibal Lectury. It wasn't meant to. (laughs) Um, but um, (laughs) And the the metaphor switched entirely from the sticker album to the quilt halfway through. But in my fairness, in fairness (laughs) to me, I'm quite tired. Um, (laughs) But it's that at a certain age, things that grip you become foundational to you. Whereas in later years, you know, I would count myself as a massive, massive fan of The Good Place, for example. But is is The Good Place a key part of, like, my the way I see myself and the way I relate to the world? No, not really. It, our comics, yeah.
0: Probably. Mm. Yeah. What about you, Claire?
1: Um, yeah,
2: I don't think that's wrong. Um, although, on the other hand, um, I didn't read the Marvel UK Transformers until I was 20. Um <laughs> And I really did think this is just excellent. Um, <laughs> but as well as that, I think um, I think it's because of what of what comics are um, because the the act of reading text is so, um, I mean good text, text that engages and excites you. it's the, the just like the cognition of it is so satisfying and so right like the brain welcomes it um but comics as well as that like fully um generational experience which text turns to whatever it turns to in your mind it has the pictures there so it it's also it's giving you more than your than than what you can generate from your own existing experience because if you read a book when you're five um like I was reading for example the Sinclair's series probably around the same time as I was reading Bunty. And I, what I was picturing when I read it was what I was told that was there, but I was creating the images, like the mental film out of stuff I already had, like the material that I contained within my mental library. Bunty, on the other hand, shows me what the school the blind ballerina yeah. is in looks like. It It shows me exactly what her mean headmistress yeah. Wears and how she looks at her and what kinds of plants there are outside the window and everything. It it it's it's a combination mm-hmm. of being dazzled and being engaged in the process of recreation. Um, that just like it it makes your cogs mm-hmm. turn, and yeah. so as well as being, I mean, it's like it's literally formative it's making the shape of your mind and how can you argue with that
0: yeah that's exactly it yeah perfect well i think that's a very good place to end on because i've i've taken up far too much of uh, your time for both of you but um but thank you very much for joining me um it's been uh it's been a true pleasure to talk to you both it's been fantastic thanks very much for having us on yeah
2: i had a nice time
0: that's The Issue is part of the Multiversity Comics Podcast Network. You can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com. You can subscribe to the show via Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. The show is on Twitter, at That's The Issue, and I'm on there too, at Matt Loom. Finally, you can contact the show via email at that's Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.